incentivize people. Um, so for instance, is how inclusive employees are part of their performance review? And if not, why not? Um, do equity audits to make sure that people are compensated fairly. Employees love fairness. And if the audit shows that they're not being compensated equitably, then adjust and let people know if you're doing the work of an equity adjustment, get the benefit by making that transparent because that's how you get engagement and belonging and trust because people now know that you're working to fix the problem. Welcome to the HR L&D podcast with your host, Nick Day, CEO and founder of JGA Recruitment, specialist HR recruiters. Tuning into the HR L&D podcast will help you to discover strategic growth concepts, leadership development strategies, and the values and behaviors that drive organizational change and success. Together, let's empower our workforces, diversify our thinking, and achieve significant HR success. Hello, and welcome back to the HR L&D podcast. Today, I am joined by Dr. Robin Rosenberg, who is CEO and founder of liveintheirworld.com. She's a clinical psychologist and textbook author who has had both psychotherapy and executive coaching practices in the San Francisco Bay Area and New York City. Now, Robin is board certified in clinical psychology and is an assistant clinical professor at the University of California in San Francisco. She's also the author of a a number of psychology-related books, including the wonderful Superhero Origins, What Makes Superheroes Tick, and Why We Care. I will put links to all of Robin's books in the episode notes as well. So if you love this podcast as much as I think that you will, please do check out the episode notes that will take you straight through to a number of Robin's books. Now, she's been interested in something that I find really excited, which is virtual reality for a number of years. And she was the lead author of a study which investigated the use of VR for good. We're going to talk about that a little bit more during the course of this episode. Because essentially, Robin has managed to combine her interest in immersive technologies, along with her coaching and clinical experiences, to foster in employees a deeper understanding of how and why other people may feel slighted or even marginalised, and how we can approach such interactions a little bit differently. After decades of successful psychotherapy and coaching practices, Robin founded liveintheirworld.com, which combines the science of psychology and emotional and cognitive learning with immersive virtual reality and online learning. And Live In Their World is now committed to addressing incivility and demographic-based bias, such as that related to race, ethnicity, and gender, to help create workplaces that are more respectful for all. And this is hot, hot topic right now, particularly within the human resources and learning and development space. So I'm really, really excited to welcome Robin today to the show so we can really take a deep dive into her interest into diversity, equality, and inclusion, and more importantly, how it really impacts the future of work. So Robin, welcome to the HRND podcast. How are you feeling today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me, Nick. I'm really excited to be here. Super excited as well. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Let's deep straight in then. What got you so interested first in diversity, equity, and inclusion? It's always something I've been interested in. The graduate school that I went to uh, had that as a prominent feature. But what most recently got me deeply interested is I was doing some VR research unrelated to to DEI 
And when Trayvon Martin was killed and then George Zimmerman, uh, his murderer was acquitted. And that led to the Black Lives Matter movement. And that led some people in the United States, some white people to say publicly to journalists, uh, all lives matter or white lives matter. And not that I presume to know the lived experience of being black, but I thought that I knew enough from my background to, to wonder if we could give those people who said, you know, white lives matter enough of a dose, if you will, if you think of it as an intervention of the lived experience of what it is, you know, just scene after scene, just the heavy load that they would understand and, and really feel differently about this subject and approach, approach the whole issue differently. And sure. so that, that was the idea. Fantastic. So you come from a really interesting and, and very, you know, uh, academic background, if you like, as, as a psychologist, how has that really influenced the work you're now doing then with, with livingtheirworld.com and how, how does that link to diversity, inclusion and equality? One of the things that my graduate program taught me was to really listen to each client's lived experience Uh, particularly from individuals from demographic groups that are non-white. I also went to a public high school that was all girls that uh, gave me an appreciation for women of any color living in, quote, a man's world, if you will. And so, you know, I, I think the psychology background has really helped me understand both individuals and systems in a way that it sort of deeply understand also about behavior change and how hard that can be, but also what we know about helps create behavior change. Okay. Now, interesting, we've got, as you'll know, most of our listeners here are HR leaders, HR professionals, learning and development leaders. And there was something on your website that really resonated, and I think will resonate with the leaders listening to this podcast as well, where you state that right now there's an urgent need for corporations to address bias and subtle, often unintentional discrimination, which has become apparent within workplaces. Can you tell me more about about this and what can be done by businesses to really help them to sort of begin to overcome some of this uh, unconscious bias or, as you say, some of those unintentional discriminative practices that may be happening? Sure. Let me first off say that we all have biases and we can't not have biases. Uh, Biases are incredibly helpful to us. They're cognitive shortcuts. They're the the ways that allow us to efficiently live in the world so we don't have to process every single object or person we meet very deeply. So we can we can just say, hey, can you help me? Or, you know, just live in the world. That said, you know, biases can systematically be discriminatory. And so programs that, quote, de-bias you, I mean, really what, what they do is help you be aware of some of your biases. And that's lovely to be aware of them, but that's not enough because the whole point is, well, what do I do instead? (laughs) It's it's the next step that's missing. And, And I really think of what we're ultimately talking about with DEI as habit change. And it's probably my psychology background that leads me to, to view it this way, but, but really we're talking about the habits of, of individuals right? In teams of leaders, of hiring managers. But we're also talking about the habits of systems through procedures and policies. 
hiring is a great example of just, you know, the whole process of talent acquisition. There are all kinds of policies and procedures that are built into that, that may involve bias, likely involve bias, and, and in the end, create a discriminatory pattern. So bias is a mental process. Discrimination is, is about behavior. Sure, well, that makes sense. Now, interesting with bias, I certainly from the perspective here in the UK, it's often um, viewed as a word which has a, a negative connotation associated to it. We think if we have bias, you know, that we automatically think of that as being a, a negative thing. But you say that everybody has bias, of course. So do you think there's, um, there's an element of fear in admitting some of those biases in order to be able to break some of those habits that you're talking about, some of those behaviours? First, we need to confront the problem in front of us, and that's to address what potential conscious and or unconscious biases we, we may have. Do you think that's more challenging than perhaps in other areas of business because of potentially the negative connotations that can be associated with the word bias? Absolutely. A hundred percent. You know, I think that with kind of cancel culture, if you will, that people are afraid of having biases rather than being curious, not just what are my biases, but then also how how can I address them? Right. Um, And I, I do think it's a learning opportunity. But the, the system around the word bias, it, it, some of the consequences have been unfortunate. I mean, it's also been a positive factor in the way that just people recognizing, oh, yes, there are biases that can be problematic. Um, and that's a good thing. But I think if, to the extent that people can be open and curious about, again, not just the bias, but the what do I do now that I know? Sure. And that's the, I think, been a missing ingredient as well, that it's really been focused on the bias itself rather than, well, how should we behave? I mean, that's why I call it habit change, because it's really, so what are, what are the new habits that individuals in an organization need to develop and that the organization itself needs to develop? That's really where the the money is, if you will, or the meat of the the crux of the matter is, well, so what should we be doing differently? And is that what you're referring to on your website when you talk about there being an urgent need? Do you think there's an urgent requirement right now for corporations to reestablish or reevaluate their existing values, perhaps that they they guide their businesses by, maps their mission statements, or, or is it is it bigger than that? You know, what's 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 that urgency related to? Well, the urgency is really this is a moment in time where the issues of uh, systemic bias are perhaps not more obvious, although I think in the U.S. they are. But there's more will, I guess, if you want to frame it that way, to, to address change. I think creating or redrafting an organization's mission or values is great, but ultimately that's words, and so I think in the United States, there's this phrase woke washing. I don't know if you have that yeah. in the UK. Yeah. yeah, where there's a, where it's a lot of words and not much action. And so that's been troubling because there isn't that. So what do I do instead? I mean, that I think people are really hungering to know. Individuals want to know. Well, so tell me, tell me, what should I be doing? And I don't think that organizations are really in general providing that. Sure, that makes that makes sense. Uh, that's probably where you identify that education gap as well, not just for individuals, but corporations have have a gap, don't they, in their in their learnings 
here and how they how they do address it. We know that a lot of them want to address it. And as you say, they start with words, but actually you need action as well. And that's where, where I think there's an opportunity for people like yourself to really help educate. And, and interestingly, you do things a little bit differently than at, at Live In Their World because you utilize virtual reality as part of your program. And I would love to know more about how you're using that to help businesses and individuals to understand bias. Because for me, it sounds absolutely intriguing i only know vr really from a gaming side of things and it's it's a world that um it's as you say it's fully immersive and when you're inside it it's it's breathtaking but how are you using it to uh to help corporations individuals uh, understand bias my philosophy is that if you can get people to be open and curious about issues related to bias to dei that it'll go a lot further right and so Habit change is hard. So we have to be motivated to do it. And some DEI interventions, unfortunately, at least in the US, can end up leading white people, particularly white men, to feel shame that they actually don't want to go there, right? That they would rather not look and they don't really want to look. And if forced to look, they look, but then they forget, you know, they don't want to look anymore. And again, because of my background, what I'm really trying to do with virtual reality in part is just to say, hey, come have this experience, be curious and open to it and just see what it's like. So we're, we don't try to shame or blame. My clinical experience has been that that's not particularly helpful and actually gets in the way of learning. So we use VR in three ways. One is to literally put you in the position of someone from a different demographic group than yourself to give you some sense of what that's like. And again, there's the the wow factor and the curious factor. And it's just step into this world. You know, it's not a game, but it really is, hey, just come and have this experience. And, And people have found that really helpful and uh, fascinating, right? It allows for that openness and curiosity that are so important for learning. Sure. What we do is also show, if you will, what you do instead, right? Because I, you know, I've talked about that. So, okay, we're not really de-bias focused at all. It's really more just have this experience to see what it's like to be someone from a different demographic group or particular demographic group. And then Let's see how all of us can make a difference. So there are three different perspectives that all of us will have in a given work week. We're the person who was disrespected or or at least feels disrespected. That was the impact on us. We're the person who is a bystander, who sees something going on that's not particularly great. And we want to convert that person to an upstander, but we need to show them, what do you do? How do you handle it when you see something? How do you say something? Um, And for that original position of being disrespected, again, it's what do I do, right? How do I, should I say something? Should I say something privately? Should I say something at the team meeting? Um, And then finally, we're the person who was often unintentionally disrespectful. And when it is pointed out to us, how should we handle that? What do I do? I, I use the phrase disrespected or respect a bunch. And and that's because fundamentally for me, a lot of the DEI work is fundamentally about civility. So we call what we do civility training. Yeah. 
civility is really about unearned respect. It's just because, you know, it's the right thing to do. Civility involves being mindful of not just intent, but impact. You know, how will my words and deeds land on you? And I may not know you well enough to know, but that's a learning opportunity for me as I get to know you better. If you tell me what the impact is, not only do I learn about you, but I learn about me. So feedback is really important and how to take and give feedback. That's how we learn from each other and how we, we grow. So that, that's really fundamentally what we're trying to do. And we use VR as a way to emotionally reach people because we know that VR is incredibly impactful when done well. And it motivates us. You know, habit change is hard. We have to be motivated to do it. And the VR component of our program uh, seems to, to really do that trick, if you will. It really helps motivate people to want to learn, to want to do things differently. But it's not enough. Again, we know from a lot of research on any kind of learning that involves complex behaviors that uh, a one-and-done, a one-off learning or training is is not sufficient. And so our program is a subscription as a service because you really need distributed learning in small doses over time to, to implement habit change, to keep the new behavior, the new learning, what's called top of mind. I mean, it sounds absolutely fascinating and very, very clever and very forward thinking, which I think is is wonderful. I mentioned that, well, actually, you picked up on something there in terms of, um, you know, leadership is is much about who we are. I did a, a previous episode with, uh, with Tim Spiker, who's founder of the App Area, and he said that um, three quarters of your effectiveness as a leader comes from who you are not what you do. And I think there's some resonance there with what you were saying. And I think it's a really clever way of, um, as you say, trying to experience things from different perspectives, I think is really, really important to, towards that learning. I mentioned in my um, introduction that you have also uh, written a number of books. One of those I mentioned in the introduction was Superhero Origins, What Makes Superheroes Tick and Why We Care. But there's another book as well, which is titled Psychology of Superheroes. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up, and I, and I will put a link to these books in the episode notes, so please, please do check those out if you're interested in finding out more. But in, the, in this particular book, you explore the inner workings of our heroes, which they share with their therapist, so to speak. So understanding why there is so much prejudice, for example, against the X-Men. Now, Paul Levitz, comic book writer and former publisher and president of DC Comics, said of your books that you explore the lives of our favourite superheroes through a psychological lens and you reveal aspects of their origins that even their creators hadn't always understood. Now, we'll make this relevant to the conversation in just a moment. I think that's a fantastic quote there from Paul. Because you also then wrote a paper, which I read recently, uh, which is about virtual superheroes and using superpowers and virtual reality to encourage what you call pro-social behavior. I wondered if you could just sort of link, I mean, we've got a lot of our listeners are, are certainly into superheroes and the comics and the films and all the kind of different things we look at. We relate that then to prejudice, as we just talked about there with the X-Men as an example. Can you tell me a little bit more about your motivations in relating I guess, what is quite a complex subject area we've already sort of just touched the surface with at the moment and how you managed to relate that to superheroes and also how you then related that what going a level further with virtual reality to get some really interesting findings in relation to pro-social behavior. Sure. Um, I write psychology textbooks for university students and at one point thought, 
that it would be a fun way of teaching nuggets of scientific psychology to adults to just you know wrap little nuggets of of psychology in some kind of fiction other people's fiction such as superheroes and so that's how i came to edit the book psychology of superheroes and that that was a lot of fun and it started me on that path of of using other people's fiction to to te- again teach nuggets of psychology to adults who are you know interested so for instance you know i wrote a, a chapter on the scientific method in a book on the psychology of harry potter and and that was great fun and and if you for those of your listeners who've read the harry potter books you know they they really they don't teach an understanding of magic at hogwarts where they only teach it, it's sort of rote memorization and and that's really interesting and, and i have a whole riff about why that is and and uh involving learned helplessness and all kinds of things but so <laughs> the, the idea is really just people are curious about fictional characters and and you can use that curiosity to teach them something and that's really just how i got interested the virtual reality piece i've been interested in in vr for decades i at one point had been certified in hypnosis as a way wow. of helping um, my psychotherapy clients and my coaching clients, I, I have a, f- a phrase I created, which is before there was VR, there was hypnosis. And that was a way to allow you to be immersed in another environment, but sitting in my office, um, if you will. And in, in fact, the the two forms of altered consciousness have some similarities aside for what's called divided consciousness, where which is where you hold the reality of the trance experience alongside knowing you're sitting in my office and in hypnosis, which is why some people don't think they're hypnotized because they can be aware that they're hypnotized at the same time they're hypnotized. And with VR, there's the reality of whatever you're experiencing in a VR headset alongside knowing that you're in a headset. It turns out that for both VR and hypnosis, Neuroimaging studies tell us that your brain is registering that altered consciousness experience as real. So they also share that. So I've been interested in VR for many years because of that and had the good fortune to do some um, collaborative research with Jeremy Balinson at Stanford on VR around the time that Trayvon Martin was killed. In fact, that was sort of toward the beginning of that time, which which is what got me really actively thinking about VR as a way to address some of the, the bias issues that we've been talking about and discrimination issues. Sure. So that's, that's the VR piece. And, and, and then Jeremy was just interested because of my superhero background in, in a way to, to leverage that. So we, we had the idea of using, of giving people the power of flight like Superman, where you have accelerometers in your hands. And when you bring them together above your hands, so you're in the position of flying, the way that Superman flies, or at least the Christopher Reeve version of Superman. Yeah, the best version in my view. <laughs> right. I mean, there's different versions since then, but that you you go faster. And and in fact, what we we did was a sort of classic study of looking at what's called helping behavior or prosocial behavior. Once people took off the headset, headset were they more helpful in real life? Um, and they were. Um, I, I can talk about the results in more detail if you like, but 
but that's how I got interested in using VR for good in that way. But that led me to think about all the other ways that VR can, can be beneficial. And then sure. interestingly, because of, of COVID, well, the original way that live in their world was using VR was an Oculus headset in the workplace. But when people were not in the workplace, we had to pivot. And so we expanded where people could have the VR experience either in a mobile VR headset, which are not very expensive. You know, they're probably 10 or 15 pounds UK where you just put your phone in the headset. It's a sort of an upgraded version of Google Cardboard, if you will. Or people can watch it as immersive video on their computer without any additional equipment, like a kind of like a YouTube 360 video, if your listeners have ever experienced that. Sure, sure. Well, I know, I know the Oculus. I've had that on a list of uh, things I would like to have one day on, yes. <laughs> on my own list. Um, so the Oculus 2 in particular is very exciting, but I might lose half my listener group when I talk about Oculus. I'm not sure they'll all be as familiar. But what we can see is that it um, sounds like we're really just touching the surface with what you know the benefits potentially the virtuality can bring. And I know certainly... Um, there are people looking at using it to, to get over things like phobias as well. But I think it's um, it's really encouraging to see it used in a in, in an HR and learning and development capacity to really improve, as you say, and, and, and help educate from a, from a commercial or corporate standpoint. I think it's really, really fascinating, really, really interesting. And I haven't heard of anyone doing that in the same way here in the UK yet. Um, so I was really excited to, uh, to delve into it in a little bit more detail. And I know there's a lot of superhero fans out there. So to link the two is, uh, was exciting for me. Have you ever asked yourself, how can any recruiter understand my HR recruitment challenges? Please don't give up on your hiring challenges just yet. Here at JGA HR Recruitment, we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting, recruiting and retaining top human resources talent. We also understand just how costly a poor hire can be. JGA HR Recruitment would like to partner with you to help you overcome your hiring challenges. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more. Obviously, we talked a little bit about living their world, but some of the sustaining moments you've had since founding the company. I understand there's been some, some really interesting stories and I'd love to, well, love it if you could share a couple of those with our, with our listeners. Sure. So one of our users was a, a company that I ended up through a, a conference because <laughs> uh, seeing some of the people who had been in the program, who had gone through our program, and and they they came up to me. They told me how impactful it had been, the experience had been, and the, they started just spontaneously telling me how it had changed their behavior. And the thing, this was about three years later, two or three years later. Wow. And and how it has stayed with them and the ways it stayed with them. And and it that's been incredibly rewarding, needless to say, um, that it they it was created such a vivid learning experience for them. And they can pinpoint the transformation in their uh, work behavior for the better and what a difference it made. There's another case where someone told me afterwards how, actually what he said is, oh my gosh, my fiance was just telling me about her experience like this. It was a sort of discriminatory experience or just a drag, you know, it was just yuck. And he said, 
I thought that I understood, but I didn't really understand now. I know. And, and that, wow. again, you know, it's, it's not often we get to, you know, when you're running an, a company that you get to hear these personal cases or personal stories. And, and that's just been incredibly gratifying to know that people have really enjoyed the learning process about something that's, you know, can be quite intense and important, but that they found it to be an, this incredibly positive experience especially in these this day and age when I think people have are often a little afraid of DEI learning or can be afraid of DEI learning, that people are just, wow, this was great um, and transformative and I'm so happy I did it. That, that really matters. The other thing I, I should say is that we collect data on behavior change because it was really important to us. There, there are many DEI interventions where people can feel good about it, but it doesn't actually change behavior. And that's typically for any of the better one-off trainings, right? People enjoyed the training. They feel good about it. But again, a one-off training cannot change behavior consistently. I mean, just, it's just not possible. It's like language learning. If you don't, if you don't keep using it, you lose it. And so one of the nice things is that we get to see behavior change over time. That's just built into our program because that's our goal. Our goal is actually behavior change. It's not, it's not awareness. It just, it's, you can have awareness along the way, but the goal is behavior change. Fantastic. So you mentioned um, just before I asked that question, uh, you highlighted COVID-19. Obviously, it's had a huge impact on businesses globally. However, we have seen a lot of people, I don't know if it's quite the same in in your world of work, but where people have pivoted towards more gaming-based, I guess, things to do. If you almost, when you're in lockdown, the the gaming companies, so to speak, have have actually boomed Mm -hmm. in in this market. What's been the impact on your business? Because as you mentioned then, you know, your trading is, uh, it's a great program, by the way. I will put a link in the episode notes. You know, it's it's a a virtual reality training um, for for minimizing behaviors of incivility at work. But how's that COVID-19 really impacted your business? It totally impacted our business because we absolutely then had to pivot to um, provide ways to see the VR experience from home at low or no cost. So that hugely, hugely, hugely impacted. And then the other thing, which I'm sure is true in the UK or anywhere in the world this past year, is that HR folks have been swamped, really, really swamped, putting out fires constantly. Um, It's just been uh, I think a grueling marathon and uh, that's impacted our business as well because there have been much higher priority uh, flames to have to put out understandably. And that's still true, at least here in the U S as people move toward hybrid workplaces that, you know, there are legal issues about, can you require employees to have a vaccination and what's the what are the issues around that? And the, what's an acceptable density in the workplace? And you know your employees want to work from home at least, or from not in the office at least some of the time. And the really interesting thing about the hybrid work, from my perspective as a psychologist, is it it will in fact create its own additional set of biases that are additional challenges for leaders and managers. Interesting. um, Because we know from something called the mere exposure effect in psychology, which is that the the more often you're exposed to something, the more likely you are to feel positively towards it. 
So if it's a new brand or a political candidate or an employee, you know, so the more you see that person, unless there's a reason not to feel positively, you will just de facto feel more positively. So this this has all kinds of interesting implications for people who are working remotely, either exclusively or more often than other employees who are in the office more. There are all kinds of interesting implications for um, employees who were onboarded during the pandemic and, and really have not been acculturated into the prior office norms and in-person norms, I should say. And so how many of those prior norms will still be true? And even though these new employees are have been around for a year, uh, there are ways that they will be novices and like new hires. Um, and that's just, those are small sample, but there are some really interesting issues that are co- going to come as a result of hybrid workplaces. There's been a lot of press here in the UK. I'm sure it's the same in the States in relation to the changes to people's mental health, uh, both positively and and negatively as a result of the pandemic. One thing that I found quite interesting um, is that when you are so used to working from home on a, you know, it's been over a year now, and obviously it takes less than a year to form a new habit, although you'll be more the expert than I am on that area, is that people have become a little bit more fearful of going back. It's created a bit of, um, not I wouldn't say agoraphobia, to that extent, but certainly we we become very comfortable, as you say, and 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 um, in in our own surroundings, working with with less social interaction than we're used to. Do you think it's going to be quite a challenge for people to return to the office locations if that's something their employers are asking them to do, or do you think that going forward it's much more likely we'll maintain a hybrid of you know a mix of of home and work, or you know what are the potential mental health? problems that you would foresee going forward? Wow. Okay. So let's break that apart. So will there be issues about people re-entering an office? Absolutely. We have spent a year being afraid and being mindful and watchful and aware of our proximity to other people, whether they're masked or unmasked, yeah. Uh, you know, what our risk is, what our own tolerance for medical risk is, if you will. So the, these are equations that people have been doing in their head anytime they walk out of the door or even when they're seeing, inviting someone into their home. So that's a, that you, you nailed it. That is a habit that we have developed that is not going to go away just because we're walking into an office. And in fact, there will be cues in the environment that the the desks are further apart or that, you know, the workstations are further apart that will remind us it is different now. Yeah. There will be individual differences, however, because for extroverts, people who really thrive on social interaction, you know, COVID has been brutal, particularly for people who are extroverts. And those are the people who are going to want to be in the office as much as possible, as soon as possible, as long as it can be done safely. So there'll be individual differences in that. And the mental health piece will be interesting. There will be a long tail, if you will, of the decrements in mental health this year, because it's going to take a lot of work just to get people back to their prior baseline. We've all been very deprived. So we're, we're kind of running on empty. And 
if you've had children at home, home that you're homeschooling or you've been caring for other people or just working under incredibly difficult circumstances, for instance, two people in a studio apartment, both trying to work, you know, that it really, really takes its toll and people will be incredibly emotionally frayed and um, less able to cope. We've also had many coping strategies that we have used very well. We've been deprived of those coping strategies often, whether it's going to the gym or, you know, going to the pub with friends at the end of the day to to debrief. So it'll be lovely um, for many people to be able to do those, but it's in some ways been a lost year for many people. I'm aware it could be a a whole new podcast episode on its own, just talking about some of those changes. So I don't want to go too off piece, but one thing I'd like to finish with before we open the L&D vault, if I may, um, Dr. Rosenberg, is to talk about the psychology of leadership and how that's changed as a result of the pandemic. Because particularly in the world of payroll and HR, there are two functions that often have found it difficult for owners or or, or, uh, C-suites to say, actually, you can work from home. There are typically two departments that never really had that, certainly in the UK, that facility or that ability to work from home. However, they've been thrust into this environment. They've actually thrived in in their abilities to continue to process payrolls, deliver good HR services, and so on and so forth, in a remote environment, which was never really available to them beforehand. It's, it's, It's resulted in leadership Um, I guess, the way people lead their teams to change because micromanagement isn't as possible. There's a lot more trust involved now and people doing the work within the hours that they do them and all those different bits and pieces. Being an expert in the the field of psychology, how are you seeing the the psychology of leadership change as a result of um, COVID-19? Great question. We've all been forced to change. Uh, Leaders in particular and managers doubly in particular, there was a study that just came out, which is the issues around DEI most burdensomely fall on managers in an unrecognized way because they're the ones who have to implement it, but they're not acknowledged or compensated or in any way, shape or form typically given any, um, recognition, incentive, anything to do that work. So I think it's similar with managers in the time of COVID and as we allow people to work from home, even when they don't quote have to, where the burden falls on managers. You know, if you view leadership as sort of the C-suite folks or maybe one rung down in a large organization, it's really the managers who are really hanging in there, trying to assign work fairly, um, help people. You know, communication is often a challenge. Clarity of communication is often a challenge for many people. And in the office, we used to just be able to wheel our chair over and say, hey, I'm, I'm doing this and I didn't really understand what you meant about X. And now we may have to make an appointment to have a Zoom call to understand that. And and so managers have had to facilitate clarity of communication and trust people. The data are great, by the way, about working from home. People are going above and beyond in incredible circumstances. They are more productive often than they were when they worked in the office. So we know, and this is a horrible 
horrible test of work from anywhere, really horrible test. And it, and it works, right? I mean, that, wow, <laughs> that is the take-home message. Under unbelievably adverse circumstances, people will do a good job. You know, they will work up to their ability and work from away. So that's the good news. I sure. think the leadership issue, we're more and more already had been moving toward the importance of soft skills in leadership. Uh, you know, the command and control type of leadership doesn't work, you know, just because I say so, you should do it. I think what's become clearer is the need for leaders to understand how to lead best in a hybrid model and with employees who they may never see in person. And so the ground is changing as we speak. I mean, for me, the the really interesting question is the bias about favoring in-person workers over remote workers. How do you keep remote workers as engaged as possible and create a sense of teamness? Because we know that remote workers are typically less engaged, have less belonging, you know, feel less included. And all of the good things that follow from engagement and belonging and inclusion are just less apt to happen for them. And then you have a two-tiered team, basically, a two-tier system of team members and um, or of employees. It's a super point to highlight um, and not something I've probably necessarily considered. Uh, the firm that I run, I'm the one that's mainly remote with all my offices are based in uh, North London and I'm based in, in the southwest in Devon. So it's a really, really interesting point you raised there. Um, and I, not something I'd considered, but definitely something I'm sure that those listening to this will be now considering in the same way that I that I am. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a very, very good point. Excellently made. And it's been an absolute pleasure um, talking through those questions with you, um, Dr. Robin Rosenberg. I'd like just to open the L&D vault, which are four short questions, if I may. Opening the L&D vault. Question one. In hindsight, what is one thing you now know that you wish you had known when you began your career? Probably the rise of uh, managemental care and its implications for mental health treatment and healthcare in general, in the U.S. anyway. Um, it's, not, it's not done as well as the NHS we, you, it's a single payer system there, and it's it's yeah. really awful in the U.S. The the healthcare system here is unbelievably horrendous. Question two: What is the one common myth you often hear in the workplace in relation to EDI, and can you debunk it? Ah, debias. The idea that you can debias people, and it, it you just can't. You can only make them aware. Perfect. Question three: What are three things leaders can do to promote equality, diversity, and inclusion? incentivize people. Um, so for instance, is how inclusive employees are part of their performance review? And if not, why not? Um, do equity audits to make sure that people are compensated fairly. Employees love fairness. And if the audit shows that they're not being compensated equitably, then adjust and let people know if you're doing the work of an equity adjustment, get the benefit by making that transparent because that's how you get engagement and belonging and trust because people now know that you're working to fix the problem. Fabulous. And last but not least, what is the one piece of advice you would give to someone who has been recently appointed to a leadership role who has no prior experience of leadership in the new world? Get a mentor as soon as you can and talk to as many leaders you respect as possible. 
about what they do that is helpful. Fantastic. Well, I have to echo that advice. We've got some great leaders on this podcast, yourself being one. So please do listen to these back episodes. There's some great learnings to be had. It's been a fantastic podcast episode today. I've thoroughly enjoyed the learnings that you've given us today, Dr. Robin Rosebush. So thank you ever so much. I want to give another little plug. Oh, my pleasure. I want to give another little plug to your virtual reality training. You can find all the information on your website, which is liveintheirworld.com. It's a a really good resource for minimizing behaviors of incivility at work. It's a great way to help your employees to interact with each other in a totally different way. It's based on science, which you know from today's uh, podcast, but also it talks, you know, works people through emotional learning. So people really get to know how bias and how disrespect can really impact others. So please, please, please do check it out. And as I say, there will be a link in the episode notes. I will also put a link to several of your books. And there's a great white paper also on the site called Best Practices for Giving and Receiving Feedback. So please also check that out. Are there any other links you'd like me to share while we have the opportunity today, which we can direct our listeners to? Thanks. We have a monthly column, a Dear Robin column, where you can write in questions uh, about, you know, in specific instances where you're not sure what to do in the situation, how to handle it. And I will do my best to answer it. And so our answers are there. It's just liveintheirworld.com slash dear Robin. Amazing. I will make sure that link is really clear and accessible in the episode notes as well. And of course, if you are an HR or L&D professional listening to this podcast and you have a requirement that needs some specialist recruitment support, then please do get in touch with myself, Nick Day. I would love to show you what a great HR experience can feel like. You can catch me directly at nick at jjrecruitment.com or give me a call on 0044-1727-800-377. Just need to say another huge thank you to Dr. Robin Rosenberg for joining me today. And I look forward to bringing you all the next episode of the HR L&D podcast real soon. Take care of yourselves and each other. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into the HR L&D podcast with your host, Nick Day, CEO of JGA Recruitment Specialist HR Recruiters. If you need any help with the current HR or L&D vacancy, then please get in touch with Nick and his team. All contact details can be found in the episode notes. In the meantime, to make sure you never miss a future episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels. Till next time.